Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hello, my name's Shireen Kerr and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm James Boston and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Bafo Ababio and you're listening to Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Jameer Amaraji, and you listen to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Akwa, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Jalal Amir, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Chelsea Coombson, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, my name is Laura Marvin, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Marvis Stewart, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I am Myra Khan, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi folks, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. I am your host, Kolsima Ali. How's your week going? Are we all winding down for Christmas? I certainly am. I've cut out the noise, and I have retreated into my cocoon. I don't know how else to describe it, um, but yeah, I've pretty much... Um, hibernating I guess you could say. So this is the penultimate episode of series two, the episode where I will speak into the microphone and talk about my dad. As many of you will know my dad died at the end of January before lockdown. He died suddenly and unexpectedly in hospital in the very early hours of the morning just before he was meant to be discharged. This is quite hard to do as it hasn't even been a year since my dad died. My dad literally was my best friend, someone who was consistent and present throughout my life. The person that protected me and cared for me. I have so many memories of my wonderful pops. After my mum died, it was just us facing the deafening silence of my mum's absence in the house. A house that was once like Piccadilly Circus was no more. My relationship with my dad changed because I took the role of carer for my dad. My dad lived for 10 years without my mum and I lived with my dad and cared for him for 8 years of that 10. We cooked together, shopped together, went on loads of road trips and were quite reliant on one another. As long as I had my dad I was okay. He helped me through my grief after my mum died and I think I helped him through his grief too. Growing up my dad was the person that made me breakfast every day egg soldiers before dropping me off to school always at the school gate as my friends recall the only dad at the school gate I guess in those days typically you would see the mother at the school gate not the dad my younger brother who was born non-verbal and autistic shifted my mum's focus he needed 24-7 care and I was four at the time so my dad pretty much parented me I remember he did all my back to school shopping every summer exciting trips to wh smith to buy stationery this is probably where my love for stationery comes from i also remember when he got me my first swimming costume it said save the sea on it i wasn't present at the time of purchase but was impressed he made a good choice unlike the thomas the tank engine school bag not such a great choice dad that is when i threw a massive fit i sometimes think back to that and i just think you're so silly he did his best he also got me my first bike it was red and it came with a bell he stuck two wheels on the back to help me learn how to ride a bike my dad was lovely he did his best for me and had a lot of time for me as he took an early retirement to help my mum with my brother and me 
My mum, what I know now, was suffering from postnatal depression for years after having my brother. As everyone in the family recalls her mood and personality had changed after giving birth to him and finding out he had disabilities, which doesn't surprise me at all. It makes all sense. It's a lot to take in. Nobody prepares you for parenting a child with multiple disabilities. It's a whole other story that needs its own episode. I understand a lot more of my mum's life since I started podcasting because I had a lot of time to reflect on areas of our life that I hadn't before. So coming back to my dad, I miss cooking with my dad, seeing him making his own spices. He would mix them all up, all the powders together. He'd like lay all the newspapers out. Um, And I miss buying him a box of fried chicken, hot wings and chips for us to share with one another. I fondly remember our road trips and when we went shopping for a lawnmower for the garden. My back garden wasn't a typical kid's dream. It was an allotment where my parents grew. Potatoes, onions, red radishes, tomatoes, marrow, coriander, you name it, my parents grew it. So many summers to look back on, including the water fights we had. After my mum died, my dad gave up on the garden. He said that's all gone now. I could really see his sadness. It didn't matter what we said or did, he lost interest in something he loved to do. My dad, however, taught me to upkeep the coriander for a while and taught me how to cut the grass. He was getting older and tired, he couldn't do it anymore, so he would sit on the bench and sort of watch me attempt it. I kept my dad's gardening gloves, I kept a lot of my dad's stuff. My dad had this office chair he would sit on. I'm sure many of you can resonate with a family member having their own chair that nobody else sat on. On the last day of clearing my dad's stuff and getting ready to hand in the keys to the house, I was determined to get the chair in my car. But it wouldn't fit in my boot. My brother was getting embarrassed. He said the neighbours are watching. It was chaotic that day because we had to say goodbye to the house. So we cleared all of my dad's things, some of which were from the 50s. I kept a lot of my dad's jumpers and a jacket and some of his hats. The chair I managed to get in the front seat of my car. I found a way, much to my brother's shock and my sister's laughter. I didn't want to leave it behind because it felt like I was abandoning my dad if I did. The chair is now here in my place. It has taken the place of where I'm sitting right now. Our last day in the home I grew up in and spent most of my life in the longest out of all of my siblings was hard to say goodbye. I couldn't hear myself think with my siblings in my ear. Handed over my keys, but for some strange reason, I still felt like I needed more time. This is a secondary loss related to my dad, as it was our family home where all the grandchildren grew up, where we spent our Ramadan's Eids and Christmas. The home we nursed my mum through cancer in. The home she died in. A secret garden of memories. So the next day I went back and sat in the back garden for a bit, alone, without my siblings. I reminisced all the good times, said a silent goodbye. On the way out, I noticed the pegs were still on the washing line. I took them down one by one, peered into the kitchen window for the last time. It was so sad, so sad. I can't tell you how emotional I felt. My brother was the last one there. He closed up and handed the keys in. My sister says I shouldn't drive past. Do it in maybe 10 years when you have healed. But I did drive back a month later. A new family had moved in. I was overcome with emotion. It was the realisation it was an end of an era. My dad's death marked a chapter in our lives that is now officially over. It's like that when you become parentless. You lose all your roles. I lost the carer role. The loss of a home. 
which was full of love, laughter, memories, good times and bad times. This year will mark the first Christmas without my dad and I won't be driving home for Christmas anymore. We did our best to recreate something after my mum died, but now nothing can be recreated. It's all died with my dad. This is where it comes to a final end. I think about his life before me, before he married and had kids. This is a life of someone who was a former subject of the British Raj, that was invited to the UK to rebuild the country. For those of you that don't know British history, so your Windrush and communities across India, Bengal and Pakistan rebuilt the UK after the war. That was my dad. He arrived in Yorkshire and worked in the factories for years as a young adult. I have a picture that was sent to me after the funeral. It's a picture I've never seen before that brought tears to my eyes. A picture of my dad with his cousin as young men in suits when they arrived to the UK. It makes you wonder about the life your parents have never talked about because it was painful. A life where they were not welcomed here where if you reported anything to the police you would get beat up. Sometimes my dad would open up about it and other times he just didn't want to. I'd often ask, how did you get here excitedly? Was it by boat? My dad would laugh and say no by plane and I would shout Biman Bangladesh and my dad would laugh at me some more and say well no it wasn't quite Bangladesh then it was East Bengal or East Pakistan if you like. I stumbled across a podcast which I'll add to the episode show notes called Three Pounds in My Pocket. It's a BBC Sounds podcast that follows the lives of people that were the same generation as my dad. Most have died or are dying. They recall a part of history that is not told the arrival of people from the Commonwealth countries that came to Britain after the war in the 50s and 60s to rebuild it. I've never cried so much listening to a podcast. It reminded me of so many of the stories my parents would recall when I was growing up. I felt overwhelmingly sad when I think about it. Housing was such a big part of my dad's story. He moved around a lot. You couldn't easily be housed back then. It's something that's impacted us all growing up particularly in suburban London where racism is rife on white council estates. Another topic that needs its own episode, as I have many stories and experiences to share. So when I look at that picture of my dad, I wonder, and I feel sad. I was raised by wonderful humans who did the best that they could. After my dad's funeral, my sister hosted a lunch for my dad's friends and cousins, a small intimate gathering of remembrance where memories were shared amongst a generation of people who arrived in the UK back in the 50s. Well, the ones that are still alive most have died long ago. An outpouring of love from the community and shock that he had passed on. A lovely gathering of people from all over to remember my lovely dad, or Pops as me and my sisters like to call him. So this is the part where it gets really bleak and where I get very angry. But before we go there, here's some stats about preventable hospital deaths. As many of you know, my dad died suddenly and the doctors class it initially as unknown, but also noted that my dad was being treated for cholecystitis, which he had recovered from as he responded to the antibiotics and showed huge signs of improvement after an infection. According to the BMJ, also known as the British Medical Journal and the London School of Tropical Medicine, they have researched and looked into this and I will add the four-minute episode into my episode show notes. One in 20 deaths are preventable and avoidable 
in English hospitals. They find that most of these deaths happen amongst the elderly population for no reason at all. My dad died unexpectedly and very suddenly. He wasn't supposed to die. You see, my father was rushed into recess because he had an infection. When they looked into it, they found that he had cholecystitis. They treated it with antibiotics. It had cleared up. He was in recess for maybe 24 hours. It was quite strange to see him hooked up to machines. I've never seen my dad in that state before. My dad isn't someone that frequented the hospitals. He wasn't in and out of hospitals at all. I mean, he had vascular dementia and he had diabetes, but it was managed really well. You know, we cared for him and we also had extra help with external carers. So seeing him in recess was quite hard seeing him in that state was really difficult. I know that my dad is elderly, but that's neither here or there, really. You know, a week after my dad died, I ran into someone I hadn't seen in years, someone I went to school with. And the first thing he said to me was, oh, hi, how are you? Haven't seen you in a while. And you seem kind of down. And I was like, yeah, uh, my dad died last week. And the first thing he said to me was, oh, well, how, how old was your dad? And I was like, he was in his 80s. And then he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, that's okay. That's normal. And I just, I stayed silent. I gritted my teeth, but I really just wanted to hit this guy. Like, it was such an insensitive comment. My dad had just died. It doesn't matter how old he is. And it had nothing to do with the fact that he was 80. Like, my dad actually died unexpectedly and quite suddenly. So anyway, that, that age thing always really bothers me. But it's not normal for elderly people to, to die in hospitals. They should get treated for what they're there for and then out as quickly as possible if you can so with my dad he was in recess for 24 hours then he was in amu for 24 hours he looked great in amu of, of course amu has a great reputation as a ward cqc has actually marked it as very adequate and i think recess is also marked as very adequate but it's the and maternity is marked as adequate in my local nhs trust but it's the other wards like surgery and the rest wards that don't have a good reputation the ward that he went into the churchill ward had the absolute worst reputation and that's the oldest part of the hospital it's in the basement there's no natural air the windows you know it's in the basement it's like being on on the underground if you get the underground in london and you can feel the air and the environment that you're you know you, you really are in the ground that is kind of what that basement ward was like and he was in there for too long that was the issue even the head nurse said to me when i had a meeting with her in march she said she said well your dad didn't die from what he was being treated for why did they not send him home? Well, you're telling me, love. Why are you asking me that question? You need to ask your colleagues and your staff that question. You're clearly not managing your staff properly. But she asked me the question, which I found very, very strange. You know, me, my siblings, we were there 24-7 for two weeks by my dad's side. And he had recovered and he'd been functioning, he'd been eating and going to the loo and, you know he was talking and chatting and he was fine and my sister was the last person to see him she said I was there with him for hours and hours you know I brought him newspapers I gave him a shave he was eating he was drinking he was fine but of course the consultant said to her when he gave her an update just as she was about to leave the ward your dad's a little bit dehydrated so you just need to make sure he gets water 
So as my sister left the ward that evening, she said to the staff that evening, um, she said to the staff on that shift, I'm going to leave now. Can you just make sure that my dad gets lots of fluids? Because the consultant said that he's a little bit dehydrated. And so as my sister left a couple of hours later, my dad deteriorated and he died. I had returned to work on that Monday because um, the impression I got on what I was told was that dad was coming home on Tuesday or that week. He was meant to be discharged. And I had made plans to move back into my old bedroom at my dad's house. I mean, I only lived 10 minutes up the road, but I made the decision to move back because my dad's never really been this ill. This is probably the most serious thing he's had in hospital. And he just looked really down and he didn't want to be in the hospital. So I was like, right, I'm going to come home. I'm going to move into my old bedroom. I'd spoken to my brother about it. We were talking about getting things ready. And yeah, So I had returned on that Monday and I said to my brother, I'll I'll see dad when he's back home on the Tuesday um, and I'll be moving back in. But of course, I didn't even get to do that. I never got to take care of my dad in the end, really, which is what the plan was. You know, dying matters. They always talk about having a good death and, you know, the end. And this was it. I was like, right, this is probably the most serious thing my dad will ever have. And I do feel like he's on his last legs and we just all need to move back home and just make the, you know, his final days easy on him, even though he wasn't dying. But it was just kind of my intuition. Um, I was going with that because I was just so shocked at the fact that he was in he was in, in hospital, you know, never as a family. We'd never, you know, we just never experienced Um, seeing my dad so ill but of course I got the phone call in the early hours of the morning you need to come down to the hospital there's you know there's been some complications and my dad had died so I'd arrived all my nephews and nieces my brother-in-laws my family were there you have to understand this ward that he was on there was no privacy there's a chair separating one patient bed from the other and a curtain there is one bathroom and toilet in the entire ward shared by what is maybe 50 patients on a ward it's very narrow even when my niece visited that hospital she said this is inhumane they can't be keeping patients like this surely she was quite shocked by it I mean we all were my dad was supposed to have a special bed actually and they didn't make that up in time he was on the other end of the ward he was meant to be closer to the nursing station so I arrived that morning I remember jumping in my car and I was very calm when I got to the traffic lights it was a red so I stopped and I think at that point it really sunk in that my dad was dead and I was just screaming in my car I was crying so hard and then I arrived parked up my car arrived at the ward my sister explained what happened apparently my dad vomited from his nose and had lost consciousness and died so we were there with my dad his body was still warm He looked so peaceful to the point that I wanted to say out loud, are you sure he's dead? Because he just looks like a sleeping person to me. This doesn't look like a dead person. And his face just looked so light. He looked very sort of his expression, like he was smiling. And (laughs) I couldn't say that out loud because that was not a good time to say that. But to me, when I looked down at my dad, he just looked like he was asleep. He didn't look dead. He didn't look like he was in pain. And I I just couldn't get my head around it. And I, I said to my brother, I said, we were making plans 
for him to come home. He was meant to be discharged. And of course, it probably wasn't the right moment for me to say that. But I was so emotional that I I couldn't understand what I was seeing. I was standing in front of my dead dad. After two weeks of being by his side and seeing him recover. And then suddenly he's dead. And even the medics can't get their head around why he died. It was really, really upsetting. And my brother just shot, shot me this look. Because I did say to him, you said that he was coming home. Well, he's not coming home, he's dead. Of course, at that point, it got a bit too much. I walked out and I went to a little open plan waiting area, which was near to my dad's bed, and I sat down. And I don't think there's one single person on the ward that didn't hear my cry. The patient left to my dad was someone from the South Asian diaspora. I, I can't pinpoint where. And there was a guy opposite my dad that was waiting to be picked up by the Gudrara. So they both joined me in the waiting room. And this younger guy, he, I think he wanted to console me and he looked very empathetic. And I couldn't understand why he was just staring at me because I'm sitting there crying and obviously distraught. And he said to me, look, I just want you to know that your dad was with God. He was praying in his last moments. He said all your names and, you know, he was basically just giving his account of what he heard and saw and then the guy opposite him the the older gentleman he was just like I know you're upset well he was talking to me in Punjabi which I can understand but I cannot speak and he was just like he was with God and that's all that matters I get that you're upset right now but he was he is now with God and I think he was like some really religious man waiting to go back to the Gudrara so like I guess he would see it like that but right now I was like very distraught and it was quite sweet that they came to talk to me and console me but there was something that the younger patient that was left that was to the left of my dad he said something to me he said you know your dad kept calling out for water and I was like okay did they give him water and his face just gave it away his expression gave it away and goes well I tried I went to the nursing station the issue is that your dad was calling for water in like our language and I said oh he was saying punny and he goes yeah which is a universal for water in South Asia I guess and I was like oh did they give it because you know that you know he's just slipped into Bengali um I guess if he deteriorated two hours beforehand he probably was disorientated and it's in his medical notes. And he goes, I tried. I went to the nursing station. I asked for water. It was clear that your dad had deteriorated. But that nurse walked away from my dad, apparently. And they confirmed that she did. And they said it was unfortunate that she walked away. because She didn't understand my dad. Well, if you don't understand somebody's distress, surely as a nurse, for all the nurses that are listening, because I know that you listen. I know there's a lot of medics that listen. If you don't understand what a patient is saying... Surely you'd be like, I can't understand what you're saying. What is it that you need? It's not like my dad doesn't speak English. He's been in this country since 1954, for Pete's sake. He speaks really good English. But I think if you have dementia and you're going into arrest, you are disorientated. You do become nauseous. Like, your surroundings do become unfamiliar. And it's in the medical notes. And my sister said it before she left the ward. She would say it every evening. So would I. Because I'd always ask for a jug of water. They don't leave drugs out because it's an open plan ward it's not a private room for the safety of the patients but this nurse walked away from him because she said it wasn't said in English 
so she didn't bother tending to him. So when her colleague returned back from her break, she said, well, Mr Ali is distressed and I can't understand, but he keeps asking for water. He's been asking for it for the last hour or whatever. And she was like, oh, that just means water in his language. I'll get it ready. At that point, that patient was running up to the nursing station to ask for it. They had a go at him and sent him away, which which is a story that I've been told. And they got the water ready. And apparently when they gave the water, he vomited. So I did some research and people had asked me to find out if my dad had aspirated. Was it in a cup? Was he sitting up? I spoke to these nurses two days after and they said, well... Of course he was sitting up, that's part of our job, blah, 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 blah. But the nurse gave me attitude that she walked away from my dad. She goes, you're twisting my words. At the end of the day, I don't speak your language, so how am I supposed to know what your dad's final words were and what punny meant? And she just... It was that common as muck. I'm sorry, I'm going to be really bitchy here. You know, I've lived in my area my whole entire life. It's that typical white working class attitude. Go back to your country, the way that she said it. Like, a UKIP attitude. She just gave me that attitude. And, like, she had her face down. And she was very, very guilty. She looked very, very guilty. And I just knew that she knew my dad was distressed for an hour or so. But because he wasn't distressed in English, she wasn't able to tend to that, because it's not in a language she understands, you dumb ass bitch, right, any medics that are listening, <laughs> use the common sense, even if, like, how many, like, there, there, you can get translators in hospitals, you could have phoned us, we live 10 minutes up the road, she didn't use her common sense, she didn't bother, she waited until her colleague returned from shit, like, her break, to ask who knew, and, stories you know stories don't match up what i've been told verbally doesn't match up to what i uh what were the final findings in the six page letter they say that he vomited upon checking the obs so when he had deteriorated uh the doctor was like i'll give him an av saline and see how he is in an hour but an hour later they found he was dying he'd gone into an arrest cardiac arrests aren't so sudden if you're going to go into a cardiac arrest you probably would have been ill for about two hours you would have been nauseous you would have been breathless that they've listed all of that in the findings it's there in detail it's quite shocking to read and then they just left an av saline thinking that would do the trick but it was very clear that it deteriorated to the point he was going to go into cardiac arrest but they didn't pick up on that so i unpicked all of these things i also unpicked that they gave them two bags 250 milligrams of normal saline within an hour and a half which would overload your organs And then they retracted that and they said that was a poorly structured sentence. So I've been dealing with a lot of admin, like back and forth. So then they changed their story again. So what I've been told verbally, what's been on paper, none of it straightens out. Um, So which one is it? You know, every time I question something, they backtrack and they retract. When I asked for my dad's full medical notes, it took them a good three months to get that right. Because whoever photocopied it didn't photocopy it correctly. They still don't want to take responsibility for the fact that that nurse just walked away. And she's employed under the NHS. She's not an agency staff. They can't afford to lose her, of course. And all health professionals are insured. So even if they are to blame, they're still insured and they can pay out. That's why, you know, our hospitals, our NHS trusts pay out 2.4 billion every year in negligence cases. And they can because they get away with it because they've got insurance. I've spoken to three lawyers this year, Lee Day being one of them, who are probably the best when it comes to NHS negligence. Their lawyers are ex-medical experts, nurses, etc. 
And they said to me, we're really sorry what happened to your dad. It's very clear that he got below standard of care. The issue is your dad's age. We're just not going to touch it. We don't want you to spend more money than you have to. You will not get the compensation. The fees will outweigh that. I was like, I don't want compensation. I want accountability. Their response is, we're lawyers. We're here to make money. And they felt that it was not worth me pursuing. They said, we get that your dad's underlying health and age isn't the issue here. He was in for cholecystitis and that there was a below standard of care and he didn't die of cholecystitis and it's unknown. But the facts remain that this is how the law works. This is how the system works. So they said to me, why don't you go to Law Society, speak to like another lawyer that might take it on pro bono so you can just get basic accountability or go to the Parliamentary Health Ombudsman. I've spoken to so many lawyers this year, and they all agree what happened to my dad was, like, really tragic and preventable and shouldn't have happened. But they just, they won't represent it because of the fees, and they don't take on clients that will have to pay more than they get back. And I don't care about the money. I just want the system, the system that we live and breathe, to stop taking the piss. They've been taking the piss for a very, very long time. The system just is not there for you. It's not built there for you. And it's not built for you to ever win a case. So I have gone to Parliamentary Health in Budman and they have agreed to take it on. But it's a backlog. It could be a year. It could be two. Because guess what? It's 2020, the year of the global pandemic. I'm not the only one complaining at parliamentary health several other people are complaining as well and mostly they're cancer patients that have died that shouldn't have died because they couldn't get their treatment because of coronavirus (sighs) says it all doesn't it says it all honestly i really feel for those families where again those that were very gravely ill that didn't get to have their treatments because of covid it just becomes so convoluted it really does and having to navigate the nhs this year has been somewhat tricky and i realize why they make it hard for you to make a complaint because you have to start with local resolution before you take it anywhere else i have to say i appreciated the honesty of the lawyers they were very very honest there was a lot of integrity there and they were genuinely sorry about what happened to my dad and they, you know, they wrote to me and they said he he received below standard of care, no doubt. But we can't represent it because of his age. So, that, you know, you learn something new. The older you are, the less they'll represent you. Because the way they see it, old old people are on their way out anyway. Um, It's better if you're younger and fitter and don't have any underlying health conditions. Which is another thing that really annoys me. I feel like the underlying health condition was the scapegoat of 2020. It's got nothing to do with it. And I think that they, particularly when it comes to the BAME demographic, they absolutely love using that as an excuse and it's not you know even the head nurse of my local NHS trust said to me well your dad didn't die from what he was being treated for he recovered from that and the consultant when he had to do the report before it went to the coroners he ticked the box that he considers it unknown um but then he ticked the other box that my dad had a cholecystitis and that was that really um so I do think about this evidence this four minute episode where which I will add to the episode show notes from the London School of Tropical Medicine and BMJ the hospital deaths particularly for the elderly demographic are preventable you can avoid them 
it's just laziness. You know, I have a friend that I went to primary school with. She was really shocked that my dad had died. She's the one that said, oh, what I remember most about your dad is him always being at the school gate waiting to collect you. You were so lovely. She's an NHS nurse. And she said to me, Kosima, the reality is that there are very many good nurses, but equally really bad ones. It sounds like that morning your dad, unfortunately, had lazy nurses on shift. And of course, it's the early hours of the morning, so they're tired, aren't they? They're less alert and less bothered, and they're about to come off their shift or whatever. I am not a big fan of the National Health Service. I'm not a Tory by any means. I'm actually a Labour voter. I'm massively left, not even centre-left, left-left. Like, I'm as left as you can get. But when my mum was ill, I just want to say it was Labour in power. I don't want to play party politics here. It doesn't matter who's in power. Nobody's going to invest in the NHS. They never have. Come on, when have they? And yes, I agree. Andrew Lansley was... Uh, maybe I'll get his name wrong. Uh, is it Andrew Lansley? Yeah, he's partly to do with the mess that is the NHS now. But I don't want to play party politics. You can love the NHS and equally criticise it if it doesn't work, and that's what I do, because I believe that this very important service should work in a way that it it delivers, that it works for us, and we should talk about it when something's gone wrong, because these are people's lives in your hands, you know? As medics, if you're tired and you're overstretched or stressed, don't go to work, You know, I work in bereavement and if I'm having an off day, I know there's no point me turning up because I'm not going to be able to be there 100% for that bereaved family or young person or child. So I will not turn up because I'm not 100% myself. The amount of times I hear, oh, don't be mean to the NHS, they're tired and they're overstretched and they have to do long shifts. Yeah, but they get a lot of benefits as employees that most other organisations and institutions don't. And they don't have to turn up to work if they're stressed. They can take time off. So for the medics that are listening, which I know many of you do, if you're tired and you're stressed, you need to tell your manager, I'm a harm to a patient. I'm not turning up to work today. But many still turn up because they're careless and they couldn't give a two shits how it affects the patient. Even the nurse said to me when they struck off that agency nurse that was absolutely useless in AMU this year, and me complaining against her was, you know, it it was the hammer hitting the nail on the head, if that's even a phrase or a saying, because staff had already complained about her and it was easy to get rid of her because she'd come out of retirement to help and uh, so many people were already complaining about her. She was agency staff, so they they could strike her off that NHS trust and advise the agency that she's not hired in any other NHS trust. But anyone that's already employed under the NHS that is an agency nurse, that's harder and they'll do everything to protect that person because they don't, you know, there's there's a lot of loopholes, there's, sorry, not loopholes, there's a lot of work that goes into recruiting that stuff that actually work for the NHS that are not via agency staff, and that head nurse, she said to me, well, you know, we were short-staffed in AME, so we need someone, oh, so you, so you're short-staffed, so you'll take a harmful nurse, well, that's logical, I couldn't believe that she had said that to me. She said that to my face in the meeting. I was like, right, so you don't care about patient safety. So because you're short-staffed, you'll take on a nurse that is 
a harm to the patients. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I honestly think that NHS leadership is the reason why the NHS doesn't work. We spend too much time blaming the government, but you need to remember that the NHS Trust ran up a debt, which this government paid off early this year in April. They've also awarded 21 other NHS Trusts over a million to rebuild their hospitals. My local NHS Trust is one of them. But that's because my local MP is the Prime Minister. And of course, if your if your local MP is the Prime Minister, they are very powerful and they will invest in the area. So by 2025, my local NHS Trust will be the state-of-the-art everything hospital. And the CQC ran a, ran a report earlier this year and it's marked inadequate everywhere at the hospital, apart from, I think, AMU and maternity. Um, they've marked mostly the hospital is completely inadequate especially for infections which says it all really doesn't it because yeah it is inadequate and I I really want you know I still live in this area and I really want to see that new hospital I've come to the realization also that you need to play the game a little bit this is a game of chess this isn't party politics for me at all but you do need to play the game because I'm realising the system isn't there for anyone. They will just fuck you up. And I think if you live in a postcode lottery area, that's it, that's it really for justice. Um, People are so poorly impacted in an area that is poor and is deprived and needs a lot more investment. So... When your local MP is the Prime Minister and is investing, it's kind of hard for me to kind of criticise him because I know he came under so much criticism this year for coronavirus. And of course, I agree, it was very poorly managed. But he's giving us a new hospital and that's all I care about. And like I said, it's a game of chess. Everything is in this life. It's one big fucking game of chess. So now you know what happened with my dad earlier this year. It's been difficult for me to talk about. I think I've, I don't know if I've already mentioned this or if I'm rambling, but I've had more therapy this year than any other year of my life. I've needed it. And what was it like carrying on bereavement room? Well, I don't think there's many people that can turn around and say that they carried on podcasting even after their loved one had died. You know, there's not many people that would have done that. I'm not asking you to give me a medal, but let's be real. If this happened to you, would you have carried on podcasting? Would you have parked your grief and given space to other people? The answer is going to be no. Be honest with yourself. I enjoy podcasting and I do enjoy talking about grief and bereavement and having these uncomfortable conversations. And for me, it was you know, it would have defeated the whole point of why I created this space in the first place. And I've given myself breaks here and there because I don't get paid to do this and I can give myself breaks. Um, It's a space that I created. And so that's why I've taken the decision that after this episode and the last episode of series two, I will be going on a six month break before series three starts. We do have a lineup. Um, and I'll come back to that in the next episode. But yeah, I think that I am deserving of that break and some time out for me. I don't think that I will ever come to terms with what happened to my dad. I was robbed of a goodbye. I, It's something that I'm still processing and 
there's a lot of anger there. And I feel like, you know, my dad didn't have something that was life-threatening. And the medics didn't see that he had anything life-threatening. He definitely had cholecystitis, that, that was for sure. But, um, yeah, I just don't think I'll ever get over what happened. It was quite traumatising to see that your dad was fine one minute and then when your dad is next no more. It was really hard for me that morning when I woke up and I pulled on that sweater. And, of course, it's still cold in January. So I pulled on that sweater back in January and driving to the hospital to see my dad was dead absolutely no privacy in that hospital you know it's not like we could have stayed overnight it was such a crowded ward in the basement and with one chair separating another patient's bed from another uh, I hope that kind of gives you a clear description of the type of ward he was in it just is not fit for purpose I always feel like I could have saved my dad I could have done something I sometimes feel really guilty um I never got to take care of him, which is what the plan was. I was meant to move back into my dad's house and it'd be like old times. We had such a lovely Christmas last year. It was lovely. And this year, I don't have that. I can't even go back to my family house because we had to clear out the house and give the house back. So the house that I spent the longest in, in comparison to all of my siblings, it was really hard to say goodbye. So when me, my sister and my brother were there, my older sister wasn't there. She she did her own thing. She came by and said, came by one time with her kids and said goodbye because her kids grew up in that house. And so, yeah, in the last few days when we were clearing up, I, I took some videos and some pictures and we were clearing everything up, donating some of my dad's clothes. I kept quite a lot of my dad's stuff, like his jumpers and his hats and one of his jackets. I look at the chair and I just think, I'm so happy that I managed to get it in my car it's a weird thing to explain but it was like my dad's chair and that was his chair that he sat in and yeah saying goodbye to the garden which I always call the secret garden because we did so much gardening in there and you know my dad would fall asleep on the bench and in the sun and yeah it was hard and yeah I sat there and I just contemplated like my life that I had there with my parents because it's funny, um, four weeks before my dad died, I actually had a dream. I had a dream that, um, it was a nice dream. Uh, I had a dream of my mum. She was in the garden with my dad and they were on the green side. It was very green. It was very summery. And my garden is generally very green and the shed is also green. So they're on that side. And then the other side of the garden, I was on the muddy side. I was on the earth side. And my mum was saying something to me and she was smiling and saying something to me. And it was almost like, I think she was saying, oh, it's time. Your your dad's going to be joining me in the garden. But I was on the other side and I couldn't get to her and I was trying to fully understand her message. And then four weeks later, my dad died. So I always associate that grief dream with a message from my mum saying, your dad is going to die. This is it now. And I still remember that dream very, very clearly because it was like a a hot summer's day. It was very green and it was in the back garden, in our back garden where I like to call the secret garden. And so I contemplated, that was my last visit to the family house 
where I sat in the garden and I thought about the water fights, all the vegetables that we'd grown, all my nieces and nephews that grew up there and all the Eids that we had and the summers and I thought about that and I was really sad like I feel sad just saying it now and yeah and I you know you you have these like secondary losses or things that you think about because I'm not gonna have Christmas in that house this year because we always had Christmas together with my dad at the house and it was warm and you know the smell and just everyone would get together and it's kind of like the centre, the glue. Um, so yeah, I, I knew that that was the end and I wouldn't ever be able to go back there. And my sister was like, don't go back there until another 10, 15 years. But I drove back down the road just to see and I could see a new family had moved in. And um, yeah, I, I went back, but my sister just can't do it. And my brother's not interested in it because he he was like it was so sad like so sad when he handed over the keys and yeah it was just really hard so it kind of marked an an end of an era I guess you could say see that's the thing when you lose one parent that's one thing but when you become parentless that's a whole other thing that you have to navigate you have to go through your family albums and family paperwork and family home and decide who's going to get the vase or who's going to get the table or who's going to get the tv and who's going to take the chair and going through my dad's paperwork as well I could see my older sister getting very very upset going through paperwork that my dad held on to from the 50s and I um I do feel I think for my sister it was really hard for my older sister particularly because she's always the one that has to do the death admin she has she has to be the one that organizes the funeral when people aren't answering their phones and you've got to organize a funeral that needs to happen within 24 hours it's incredibly frustrating I remember when she pulled my dad's phone out of the wall and she goes well he's gone now there's no point in having this phone may as well cancel it and she just ripped it off the wall like literally just pulled it off the wall um and I, I could feel her sadness and her frustration. And it must be hard when you've had to organise two funerals in the, in the space of the last two and a half years. It's really difficult. I, I get away with not doing the admin, being the youngest. My sister takes care of it all because she's the oldest. And I, I remember actually being in the hospital when she had to do the admin and she kept asking, going over the instructions with the ward manager. And the ward manager got frustrated with her because my sister repeated a question the second time and the ward manager lost her patience with my sister. She started sighing and I was thinking, our dad's just died. If you have to repeat the instructions about going to the bereavement office and getting the death certificate or whatever more than once then that's what you have to do, bitch. There's no need to lose your patience. But of course, my sister was like, so in her grief in that moment, she didn't notice. And I was standing next to her and I said to my sister, the ward manager said that they can proceed with all the paperwork if you've said goodbye to dad, so they need to move his body. Are you done with saying goodbye and sitting with him, etc.? So they can get on with the admin. But my sister had to ask that question t- twice. The ward manager got annoyed. And so I had to shuffle my sister along 
you know, <laughs> why you've just learned that your dad's died and then trying to get the admin and sort out a funeral and contact people from all over the UK. It's it's really hard. I, I can't imagine what that was like for her because, well, I can imagine it and I imagine that it's just difficult and I, I didn't have to go through that process. And she somewhat is very good at compartmentalising. So this is kind of like me going over what happened earlier this year, some of the things that I've had to navigate, like the NHS complaint, which is ongoing. So many of you have said, I hope you get justice, you know, we're watching your story and hoping you're going to be okay and, you know, that you'll get some answers. Thank you to all of those listeners and some of the former guests. These are some of the things that I'm navigating, saying goodbye to the house, getting my dad's chair in my car successfully. Um... It's funny actually, sorry to keep going back to the chair. If I couldn't have got it in my car, I would have bloody carried it home. I don't know how, but I would have carried it on my back. Um the other thing I should mention is the day that my dad died, um the nurse handed back my dad's watch because when someone dies they take their belonging, put it in a safe, and the only thing that my dad had was his watch. So they handed it over and I the watch was always coming to me my dad always said I want you to have the watch so uh my brother-in-law passed the watch to me and I, I looked at, down at it and it had stopped it had stopped on that morning that he had died um just a couple of hours earlier and I was like oh was there something wrong with his watch was it not working my brother was like let me have a look at that and he was like no his watch was always working I when I was giving him a wash the other day I took it off and it was incomplete working order so that still freaks me out a little bit because my dad's watch stopped at around about five o'clock on the 28th when he died he's also got a a date thing in the watch where it has the day number so he died on the 28th of January and yeah it stopped on the 28th his watch stopped which I don't know what that means. I'm not massively superstitious, but I thought that was very, very weird. And I feel sad when I look down at my dad's watch because I knew that day would come. The day that someone hands me over his watch is the day that it's all over. So that's it, really. I I don't know if I've missed anything out, but um, yeah, my dad was my best friend. And I know everyone says that about their dads, but he truly was. He was the only person in my life. You know, um, he was truly the most consistent a most present person in my life and he was my best friend after my mum died I had no friends he was my friend and he was there for me and I will always miss caring for him um I enjoyed caring for my dad and looking after him and now I now that I've lost that role of caring I feel very lost you know my weekends now my weekends were always about my dad evenings days off any annual leave I had it was always about my dad and now when I take annual leave, and now when Saturday and Sunday comes, I feel so lost. I don't know what to do. I'm, like, bored senseless. And it's just weird. It's weird to not receive his phone calls. My dad is someone that would call me five, six, ten times in a day to ask me, have you eaten? Have you eaten? What have you eaten? Just to check that I've eaten, which would wind my siblings up, because they would often say, wow, he still thinks you're five years old. It doesn't matter if you're 50, you'd still be five to him. I get their frustration. It's true, my dad really, he spoilt me in a way that he showed me so much love and affection. 
that nobody else has ever shown me that I don't think I will ever experience again. And so it has been a really hard year for me, not because of a global pandemic, because my dad died. And I wasn't expecting it. And things didn't go to plan. It doesn't matter how much you want to plan a good death. Things will happen unexpectedly. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to anybody. And so I'll leave you with this final statement, which I will post on the Instagram page. Grief is universal, but the narrative around bereavement is not. And I would implore every single person that listens to this podcast, thinks about that deeply. For me, grief is a lonely walk in the park. I can follow all the Instagram grief accounts, all of them, and it will never make me feel any better. Of course, it's nice to know that there are other people out there, but it's a lonely walk in the park. It is something you have to navigate and only you can navigate. I don't think that I will ever come to terms with the way that my dad died. I don't know if I'll ever get answers. But like I said... Grief is universal, but the narrative around bereavement is not. To everyone that tuned in today, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back for one more episode of Bereavement Room before New Year's. It's a reflection episode of two seasons of Bereavement Room, where I'll be answering questions and reading out your letters. As always, thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Kofsima Ali.